Hi and welcome. This is Laurent from OSINJobs.com and you're listening to the OSINT Jobs Podcast. OSINT has grown hugely in popularity and so it's no surprise that it's being used across many industries. On this show, I sit down with successful practitioners to discuss careers, jobs and skills to get a deeper insight into the world of OSINT. On the show today, we are talking to Gareth Westwood, who works as a senior manager in the global security intelligence team at a major pharmaceutical company. Today's topic, corporate security. We'll dive deeper into what this industry is all about, what skills you would need to be successful, and of course, we'll follow up on Gareth's interview that was published on our blog. Gareth, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great pleasure to be on this podcast. So let me begin this interview with a broad question. Can you explain to us what is corporate security? So corporate security is quite a broad church as the world has, you know, globalized and multinational companies now have uh, presence in, you know, multiple markets and, and Loosely defined, it can be any function that oversees the safety and security of a company. Now, this obviously varies from company to company. You might have a corporate security team that looks at safety, that looks at physical security, travel security, maybe even business continuity, and some that may combine both cybersecurity and physical security. My team uh, does not do uh, cybersecurity, but we do very much look at physical security, travel security, and also some other niche areas. Okay, so you mentioned physical security, travel security, and business continuity. Can you explain in more detail what this would entail in terms of, you know, producing OSINT? So what are you looking for? I guess you can go tactical, operational and strategic. So um, at the tactical end, you might be looking for incidents that are about to happen or that have happened in the post incident analysis, you know, in the military, we call it BDA, battle damage assessment. If it was a bomb, where was it? How many people killed? Who did it? If it's a protest going on, you know, how many people are there? Where is it the location? So, you know, that tactical intelligence could be temporal in terms of when it you know, the, the timeline of events, it could be in terms of entities or actors and crucially it could be in terms of, you know, the impact, right? And then at the operational end, you could be looking at potential hotspots of unrest, for example, if there's an election in one of your markets in which you have an office in the next week, in the next two weeks, or maybe using OSINT to look at the potential impact on, on business, on personnel. And then strategic, you might be forecasting one quarter ahead or a year ahead, looking at situations that might unfold that could affect your business. So, you know, in terms of physical and travel security that could affect the markets in which you operate, the places that your um, personnel go to or live, or it could even be supply chain, you know, what could affect the movement of your company's goods going from one country to another, for example. And, you know, that piece can, as I said, be tactical, the here and now, the operational, you know, what's unfolding, or it could be strategic looking ahead a year, several years to come. Okay. So just to summarize, you mentioned these three different levels, the tactical, operational and strategic, and they again can be classified into explaining what happened. So more descriptive, but also 
looking ahead and forecasting. So a monthly forecast, a quarterly, or even years ahead. Um, so coming back to, you know, working in corporate security, can you tell us what does a typical day look like in corporate security? How your day look is very much dictated by the level you're operating at. So one of my previous positions was kind of at that tactical level. So incident response, certainly part of it. So, you know, you could be in a global security operations center where you clock on for a shift and you, you know, some of these operations centers are just like you see in the movies, right? You've got maps everywhere with incidents coming in and your company will, um, will of themselves have data feeds coming in and there's a load of providers and I'm probably inappropriate to mention them, but a load of providers giving you data and you might have, you know, if, if you're in a, if you're in a vendor, for example, if you're a GSOC, uh, global security operations center for several clients, okay. You might have, um, several buckets of interest. So you might have, you know, clients that care about, um, I don't know, COVID restrictions, or you could have, you know, you might have a part of the world in which you, which you look, so you might just be looking at Asia Pacific and, um, now some of this software might automate the alerting to your clients, but ultimately, um, what you see a lot is that you know, the, the GSOC analyst, which is often a kind of an entry level position for folks wanting to do or wasn't, has to make that call on whether to elevate that particular situation to the client or to, to their boss, maybe. So it's very much about reacting. Also, um, you know, there is an element of uh, threat intelligence in there as well. So you might have more strategic operational teams above you uh, that can feed you areas of interest. So, for example, if there's an election going off somewhere, you know, in a week's time, you might have that intelligence from the corporate team or the strategic analysts or the regional analysts. And then you can maybe, you know, that's where you'd focus your um, focus your lens. So, I mean, the tactical level in itself can be, you know, a, a multitude of different roles, but generally very reactive. Uh, looking at what might affect your clients on the strategic and operational level, for example, um, one of the consultants that works, works for me, uh, we're each morning having a tasking meeting and looking at what has got the potential to affect the business in the short to medium term, um, and kind of writing that, uh, that, that, that operational level, often quite short, sharp reporting. Um, as a strategic analyst, you might be on the vendor side of life rather than, uh, uh, you know, at a company. I find that, you know, senior executives in big companies may not want that long form strategic anal uh, analysis, but you might be in a uh, uh, corporate intelligence supplier and you may be tasked with, for example, looking at Russia, Ukraine, drawing up a long form report. So, and the skills for all those are, are quite different, but they can all be accessed essentially by the same kind of person that's looking to get into this field. And often you get folks that go from the tactical to the strategic side, because I mean, the broad skills are quite the same. Whilst the jobs themselves are quite different, the broad skills you need for all of them are quite the same, uh, you know, in terms of report writing and, um, uh, you know, meeting deadlines, etc. So you've touched upon some of the skills required to work in corporate security, but we'll, we'll discuss this um, later in the interview. I just wanted to quickly follow up on one point, namely the, the more reactive work. So you basically said that the GSOC analyst is looking at uh, his or her screen and then looking at the information, analyzing it, and then making that call, the call in terms of, I have to escalate this because it's impacting or it could uh, significantly impact the business. Aside from this kind of work, 
what's next? Like, what else can an analyst uh, do apart from just staring at the screen and uh, analyzing all the information and escalating it? So, I mean, well, that's one of the entry-level roles of GSOC analysts. There are many entry-level roles in the um, kind of research field as well. So going straight in at the operational and strategic level, um, often, you know, uh, maybe graduates with political sciences degrees or international relations, or indeed folks that are coming out of the public sector. And also just to cover off that entry level piece, you know, another part of corporate security is the due diligence side and investigative services and folks with really good Aussie skills can sometimes go down that investigative pathway. So there's a number of options here and typically the next stage up, I guess, would be management of a small team. Okay. So you may go from kind of a case manager to managing a small team of case managers, or you might go up to, for example, a GSOC team lead, or indeed, you know, if you go down that kind of operational strategic side where you're writing longer form reports, you might end up being in charge of a region, or um, if you're kind of vendor side, a, a bank of clients. So the, the pipeline isn't straightforward, but you know, often it goes kind of, you know, that, that entry level is very, very much at the report writing, report drafting. Then you might be going through some kind of QC where you're in charge of editing, proofreading, maybe you're in charge of region and maybe you're in charge of workload prioritization as well. I guess that's, you'd call that a team leader position. Yeah. So from what you've just described, I can see two things. First, there are different opportunities within the, the field of corporate security, different opportunities where one could work. But secondly, this also requires different skill sets. So you mentioned the due diligence side where the investigative mindset is pretty useful, but also all these awesome tools to research a person or even a business. But on the other hand, there are other skills required when working at the strategic level and you look at the international relations or why one country has behaved in a certain manner and how this could impact uh, the business. So I can see that different roles require different skill sets. Um, talking about language skills, how important are languages? I mean, on the vendor side, um, vitally important. So, you know, at my company, we have a, a number of corporate intelligence suppliers that supplies information. And then my team synthesizes that and makes it relevant to our company. And, you know, that's how we work. So of course, if you're, if we're relying on outside vendors to gather global OSINT, then you'll need those, those language skills. However, you do find that companies recruit from specific markets. So you, you, you might not need a language skill that the, the, that the language you speak as a mother tongue might be enough. In terms of political science, yes, it helps. You do find a lot of international relations graduates filling these positions, but also folks from the public sector. They might not have a you know, degree in political science, but they might have done time um, with law enforcement intelligence or military intelligence. And that's the kind of avenue that I came up through, or indeed, you know, some other governments where uh, report writing and assimilating information quickly and contextualizing it is important. Because remember, if even if you've got, you know, a master's degree from a prestigious university, it's going to be the case that you're going to face issues that you've not faced in your degree. So the ability to pivot and, and, you know, assimilate yeah. lots of information, understand it, contextualize it is, is just as important as any academic requirement, I'd say. Yeah, absolutely. And this is also what you mentioned in the blog post 
Um, so for our listeners, um, Gareth did an interview where he answered a couple of questions. And one of the questions was also asking about not only his career, but also the skills required to work in this industry. And you also mentioned that there are two groups that work in this industry or, or the, the backgrounds of these groups, which is one, the public sector. So intelligence agencies, law enforcement, et cetera, and the second group graduates. So in my, in my case, for instance, I've done three master degrees and this has equipped me to some extent, but this is not comparable with someone who has spent a decade working at an intelligence agency because the work is completely different. However, there are similarities. Um, would you say that between academia and working in this intelligence role, specifically when we talk about synthesizing information, finding information and putting it together in a concise uh, and coherent report? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and there, are, there are differences between the two which complement each other, I think. And I think I'll be the most unpopular person on LinkedIn if I kind of go into the differences too much. That's a dangerous avenue to go down. For example, in law enforcement, um, in um, you know the intelligence agencies, I guess, um, government, military intelligence, um, you do know things like the, the process of intelligence direction, you know, direction collection, analysis, dissemination. Uh, your reporting is often uh, quite brief and you know customer led and there's you know there's certain reporting conventions so for example uh, uncertainty language uh, likely unlikely realistic possibility etc and ways of structure and analysis as well that you learn and i find that does translate well for example in my company if we're reporting upwards to executives our reporting has to be unbelievably brief brevity is is the number one virtue um, but you still need to get across what can be quite a complex situation. So I've certainly found that my background, military intelligence, has you know helped that because when you're briefing a senior officer, um, accuracy, brevity, and clarity is, is absolutely key. However, academia, you know, funnily enough, I've worked in my current company with somebody who's from a military intelligence background and an academic background. Uh, you find acad academics can understand um, the big picture. You know, equally as well as you, you, you folks in, in who've been in the public sector, often those more long form um, pieces of work, strategic pieces of work, maybe they've done more of them. You know, there are public sector bodies that do those long form reports, but um, more often than not, your academics are in the main more suited to those, you know, really long form um, uh, pieces. Both, you know, backgrounds can do those very well. And actually, in the public sector you find folks that have done a lot of studying as well right so this isn't an either or or zero-sum game but they are complementary um i find one you know one area of contention can be sometimes when somebody's used to writing uh essay language which can in itself of itself be not be excessive but it's quite quite wide-ranging you know padding out an essay um Academic writing tends to be very different to the sorts of writing you need to give to a senior stakeholder, for example. Um, and, you know, that, that can be a bit of a culture change sometimes. But, yeah, highly complementary backgrounds. And I think uh, the corporate intelligence uh, environment uh, has benefited and does benefit from having, you know, um, a variety of experiences from graduates and academics to public sector practitioners. But that's really interesting um, to hear. I mean, yeah, definitely there are differences and especially what you just said with the writing. There's no time to just read like 5,000 words on one topic where he just wants to know, shall I go for option A, B or C? Um, so that's really interesting. 
Now let's talk about, I mean, now you kind of like explained uh, quite in detail um, the world of corporate security and the different levels where one could work, tactical level, operational and strategic, and also touched upon some of the skills. But now maybe it's time to move on to the, the skills section of this podcast. What skills are required? So if one of our listeners says, oh, this is, this sounds amazing. I would love to work in corporate security. Um, what skills does he or she need? Uh, that, that is how long is a piece of string, but generally I'll, I'll yeah. go for kind of broader skill sets to work in corporate intelligence, which obviously is very different to security management. They often complement each other, but security management is kind of a different thing, really in different backgrounds. So corporate intelligence, where to start. Okay. So the ability to write reports really well. Okay. And not on about writing essays, especially in the private, so the private sector, you know, you need to be really up on not just content, but it sounds obvious to say, but formatting and grammar and your know, IQC reports and a lot of the time getting everything, you know, the product in, in, in the private sector needs to look as impressive as it reads. Okay. I've already said about, you know, the ability to use straightforward language to portray a complex issue in the briefest of paragraphs, you know, and I think if there's one thing that has benefited me certainly going from the, my public sector career and now into my um, thus far relatively short private sector career is the ability to uh, derive very brief, concise insight from what is a either bulk data or a complex issue. So being able to articulate, so I guess that's written, ver written communication skills and verbal communication skills, but so much deeper than just, you know, giving a good brief, doing a good report. And I guess axiomatic is the ability, therefore, to understand a complex issue, not just in the abstract, but be able to contextualize that for your company or your agency. Okay. So, you know, you could be working in, in, in the public sector. What does this particular trend mean for the, you know, if you're desk officer for Afghanistan in, in whatever government department, what does this actually mean to the intelligence requirements? Because in the public sector, You've always got intelligence requirements that you need to write to. You've got, you know, and you've always got a customer that could be a policymaker or a minister, or it could be a boss. Similarly, in the private sector, being able to go, okay, right. So there's been a coup in Burkina Faso. What does that mean for my business? You know, and and be able to to separate the wheat from the chaff in terms of what it means. So, uh, I guess that's more. Um, cognitive, right? Then education skills. Data is always good. Um, being able to use Excel to a other, other spreadsheet applications available, uh, but being, a, being able to use Excel, you know, Power BI to an intermediate level, it doesn't take that long. I, you know, I did none of that at university at all, but I managed to learn it to a, a decent enough extent because, you know, especially if you go in the public sector, especially if you go to things like law enforcement, Okay, and the military to an extent depends what you're doing. A lot of intelligence work is is data driven, and I'm not just talking about cyber intelligence. Okay, that's a separate thing. I'm not even addressing that. Uh, a lot of work you'll do in law enforcement, for example, is data led, and you know if you're curating OSINT as well, no matter what context, there's a lot of data there. Okay, and sometimes, often, it doesn't come in structured, and you need to structure it yourself. And if it does come in structured, you need to know what to do there. So data is always always good wider than wider than that is a general appreciation for what's going on in the world that goes without 
without saying, but in, you know, especially if you're going to be mid-level, senior level corporate intelligence, whereby you've got offices in every country, if something hits you from whatever country it is, you need to be able to kind of articulate what's going on, you know, write a report, task a report, know what it means to the business quite quickly. And you can't do that just from, you know, coming across an issue completely fresh. You need to have that general interest in, and interest and acumen in international relations, which, which means that you kind of can contextualize stuff quite quickly on the fly. That does mean, you know, if, if you turn off your computer at five and switch off and you're not really interested in what, what's going on in the world, at the minute, for example, if you're interested in what's happening between Russia and Ukraine, if that only extends to your working day, then you're probably not in the right job. And I'm not on about burning out. I'm on about having that residual interest, okay? Almost almost, um, almost like a hobby. I think that's important. It might not be, but it certainly helped me. And then, you know, if, if you are working at the more senior level in corporate security, an appreciation of security management. So risk security management, okay, that's important. I'm looking to develop it myself. But your stakeholders in the corporate intelligence team, if you're in a corporate security environment, will be security managers, right? And knowing how to mitigate risk is good, especially at the senior levels, because you can then connect with your stakeholder. You're not delivering intelligence in the abstract. You know, your, your junior analysts might be doing a long form piece or a short form piece on the situation in, in Burkina Faso. But, you know, you need to connect with the stakeholder and let stakeholder know why it's important to them and articulate that back downstream. So an appreciation of that, you know, and cyber as well, just knowing what it is, you know, because these days, physical security and cyber security, you know, they're, 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 they're overlapping magisteria. Um, please don't be put off anybody listening. That's a lot of skills here, but the ability to understand a lot and say it in as little words as possible and explain it clearly is probably in a nutshell what you yeah. need to do. So for our listeners, Gareth has also um, written down all the, the skills. Uh, so in his view, what, what he thinks are the top skills and attributes for becoming successful in, in this industry. Um, so you can take a look at this. I'll try my best to summarize it quickly. So. You mentioned uh, using a straightforward language, so an easy language to analyze complex issues in a brief and concise way. That's very important. So the reporting bit is, is crucial here. Also the ability to understand complex issues, as we just mentioned, but also to move beyond this and to explain to stakeholders the, 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 the so what. So why is this important? Why is this impacting the business? And to quickly, briefly explain to the stakeholders but also the data management. So being able to work with data. So not just big data, I mean, terabytes of data, but unstructured data and extract insights from it. Obviously, I hope it's, it's quite obvious that you need to not be put off by using the computer as well, tech literate, but the, the folks that are coming yeah. out of university these days, all, all of them will be, but yeah, the better you can use a computer, um, you know, the better you'll be able to do all of those things that kind of underlies the whole thing really. So this is very interesting. And what we can observe in the OSIN community is a tendency towards uh, sharing lots of resources and tools and techniques. But when I compare it with working in corporate security, I can see that the priorities here are very different. So can you touch up on like the, the yeah. utilization of, you know, these OSIN yeah. tools, um, to what extent do you use them and how important are that they? Is, that is an exceptional point. That's a really good point actually, because yeah, um, Lots of OSIN courses concentrate on tools and listen, you know, um, 
I mean, my situation is slightly different here. We have suppliers that gather information for us that we turn into meaningful intelligence. But sure, you might be a really cool, you know, um, job that a nosinger can do. I mentioned it, I think, in the beginning is this due diligence piece. OK, so in the public sector, that could be targeting. You could be at law enforcement. You could be looking to collect on a potential criminal. Um, you know, you could be uh, in the military looking to target an entity or you could be corporate investigations team looking to conduct some know your client work or due diligence on a company that is going to be merged with one of your clients. So, and I'll get, get to the tools, but even if you're penetration testing in your cybersecurity or you're doing due diligence, right? You still have to report the findings. That's where the rubber meets the road. And that's where actually your company gets paid um, or, you know, or your company gets funded if it's um, if it's public sector company, your ability to articulate your findings off of using all of those tools briefly well in a way that answers the client question so just as throat clearing you know tools are very important in in that kind of investigative work but the ability to articulate findings is essentially what you get paid for on tools themselves absolutely invaluable uh, i mean part of our corporate intelligence function at my company is actually invest support to investigations. So doing dedicated open source research to investigations, right? And I guess I admitted that earlier because kind of we're just starting in that space now, but that's a really important part for us. So in the pharmaceutical space, it's looking at counterfeiters and illegal traders of, of pharma goods, right? Very important stuff that has life changing impact. Um, and we often help develop cases uh, for further, further review and enforcement. So yeah, the tools are, are vital, but I think actually the process and what you're trying to achieve is more vital. Mm -hmm. For example, I'm not going to name the company, but um, there was a company that relied on social media having geographic metadata behind each of their posts, right? And EXIF data behind photographs, for instance, right? Now, um, Certain social media company removed the ability to geolocate posts. You know, most social media companies are now removing EXIF data from photographs before a post. Thus, that tool was rendered almost useless for the purpose that it was meant. Now, that company is still going, so I don't know what they're doing now. Maybe they've developed another niche, right? But if you're using this company um, in order to geolocate posts from certain social media overnight, you lost it. So what you're trying to find is the important thing, right? Um, because there'll always be tools out there. If you're stuck on a suite of tools and you don't contextualize what they're for, then, you know, as soon as that got tool goes out of commission, then it'll take twice as long for you to find a, a reputable alternative. So, you know, and this goes back to the intelligence cycle. It goes back to the customer. What are you trying to find out? Are you trying to find out, you know, company structure, uh, personal information, right? So, you know, um, communication selectors such as phone numbers or other identifiers, you know, what are you trying to achieve? So the, the, the intelligence cycle, direction collection, analysis and dissemination is, is absolutely key to it. So, you know, for, so for example, when that social media platform stopped geolocating the posts, why are you trying to geolocate all of those posts? Are you trying to find someone? What are you trying to do with that? Because, you know, arguably, if you're trying to find um, sentiment, and if you're trying to do sentiment analysis in an area, finding a replacement for that particular social media platform and the ability to locate it might not be the most efficient way. It might be. But trying to figure, 
but asking why am I using this tool? What am I using it for? Will future proof against that tool going out of commission? Because it almost certainly will. It will, you know, um, if yeah. you're using one of these email scrapers, so you can, you know, you can just type the information or type the IP address and give the information, um, you know, who is, what, why are you using who is, what, what are you trying to get at? What, why are you exploring this email address? What are you trying to, are you trying to pivot to a telephone number? Are you trying to pivot to, or are you just, you know, seeing what you can find? And while seeing what you can find is very fun, it's not an efficient way of doing OSINT. It has to be customer led and intelligence question um, led. And of course there are tools that you can buy that can kind of aggregate all this data as well. So, you know, and if you're in OSINTA, um, kind of doing it at university at the minute, or maybe it's a bit of a hobby and you're looking to get into the industry, of course, there are tools that aggregate data and link it up in link diagrams and all that kind of Gucci stuff as well. Um, so those are really handy to have, but you know, they're quite expensive. Uh, and even then, do you know what, if you, I'm going on a bit of a rant here, but it's something I see all the time, even if you've got, you know, a tool that can do link analysis and you can interact with it and pivot off it other data sources, I'm sure everyone knows the kind of thing I'm talking about. Um, you'll still end up with a chart with 10,000 entities, unless you know the question that you're trying to answer. So why are you using this particular data feed? Why are you just looking to see what you can get? Cause you'll be there a long time. And you know, the customer, it, it's going to be a timely intelligence product. The customer's paying money for this, whether that be a policyholder in government or whether it be a, a, a um, you know, a private um, company. So always think of the intelligence question and what you need to collect in order to essentially write the briefest, most succinct report possible that answers that question. Yeah. So th these are all really good points, uh, Gareth. I totally agree with you. So just to summarize it, we should focus on, on the customer. It's, it's a customer led product. It's, it's about supporting a decision maker. It's about the process, the methodology behind it. The tools are important, as you mentioned, and I agree with you as well but they can get taken down and you mentioned a couple of examples and, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we all know these examples that uh, one day this thing was working and the next day it wasn't, I had it myself. I was doing training. I was rehearsing the evening before the next day I came in, I showed something realizing that it doesn't work anymore. And then I checked it on Twitter and other people were also talking about it, that it's, it has been removed, uh, which was quite a pain a little bit, but this is how it is. And then try to convey in these training sessions. He said, it's about the methodology. It's about asking the right questions and not so much about these tools. They're quite nice and handy to have. And as you also mentioned in the, in the skill section, it's about submitting a brief and concise report. Before we move on to the kind of like final session, uh, let me just quickly summarize. So we talked about the industry. You talked about what corporate security is, what kind of like work it involves on the tactical, strategic and operational level. And then we moved on to the skill part where you highlighted some of the skills. I mean, there are many, many skills, but you highlighted some important skills that you as a senior manager as well view as quite important. So now let's move on to the kind of like career bit, uh, where we also find out more about you. And if you can tell us a little bit about your career, like how you started. So what I can, I mean, already say is, as I mentioned, that you have already done the interview on OSINJobs.com and I highly recommend reading it because again, it's brief and concise. And here you also talked about uh, your career and maybe we can dive deeper into, you know, how you moved away from the, so you went to the British military, 
and then you got your training there. And then how did you move from the, the military to then the corporate side? Oh, thank you very much uh, for that. And that, yeah, that is real uh, concise summary of what we've talked about so far. Thank you. Through my own career, I was a school teacher in my twenties. Um, and one day I joined the army and then the rest is history, but no, I'll go a bit deeper than that. <laughs> so yeah, I joined the military going into kind of intelligence and analysis was a bit of an accident. I originally wanted to be a pilot, uh, but I was too old by the time I, I decided to join the military, I was off that um so they told me to do something else instead uh so a few options um were, were you know presented to me and initially i was quite skeptical but i joined the military got through basic training and managed to just you know and and get through it all uh, it's actually quite fun with my rose tinted spectacles on and yeah i i was immediately posted to what was a really interesting role and uh you know the difficulty at the time was that we were being trained at a certain classification. However, some roles are at such a high classification that, you know, when you ask, when your seniors are asking you what you want to do, you don't actually know what you're applying for. Anyway, I ended up doing a really interesting role. Uh, it was kind of at the tactical end, uh, really uh, doing some counterterrorism work and, and some other, other stuff as well. So what I would say, obviously I can't into too much details here which is unfortunate uh, but what i will say to people is never discount the military is a good starting as a good starting place you know i've talked in the blog more so than i have here about the fact that if you can get some public sector experience behind you even if you are a graduate that that that's really handy you know that's really good and not discounting those who haven't got public sector experience that's absolutely fine there's some wonderful practitioners out there but don't discount the military you know the army isn't what you almost certainly isn't what you think it's like. It can be what you think it's like, but there's, you know, the British Army, for instance, there's so many, so many uh, trades and experiences, almost certainly not like the stereotype you think. Same as the RAF, the Royal Air Force and um, the Royal Navy, uh, and of course the Marines, all of them have roles, kind of intelligence leaning roles to a, a greater or lesser extent. And I'm sure, you know, to our non-UK, uh, colleagues pretty much all branches of all militaries have uh, kind of security and intelligence part of them so really don't discount it and you know the fitness and all that isn't too bad and getting shouted at isn't that bad for a little while uh, although i don't think i could do either these days so um yeah i did not not a long time to be honest in the military those on my linkedin will see um doing some extremely interesting roles deployed overseas to iraq and a few other places and then i uh went for an interview to do a contracting job turned out that the client was was uh, the british government again but it was actually through a private contractor um and that was to go overseas for a little while uh, i'd not gone overseas as much as i'd like doing so rather than tough it out and try and get a few more deployments i looked at the job and the job itself is all source so up until that point i'd been very targeted doing the things i was doing and I talked a little bit about that earlier about doing like more targeted tactical stuff. So maybe researching entities rather than, you know, looking at big kind of issues. So I wanted to do a little bit more of the latter really. And as I said, we'd call that all source. Um, so yeah, um, it was time for me to um, stop gallivanting around the, around the world and actually uh, come back and do a vaguely normal job. <laughs> um, and I wanted to pivot to the private sector for a little while. Um, you know, I think, I was passionate about intelligence and security work um, and I wanted to have a go at, at doing it for a company and see what the difference was, you know, and see if I could add any value. And what I will say to any public sector colleagues out there, especially military, 
uh, and law enforcement, I see a lot of folks that reach out to me that question what they can actually offer, you know, vastly underplay their skill set. If you've been doing kind of intelligence and security for a while in the public sector, your skill set and your way of looking at things is um, well sought after in the private sector. Uh, you know, these things that even that stuff that I learned 10, 11 years ago when training in the military, you're doing intelligence training, I'm finding invaluable and it adds so much value to a private corporate, corporate um, intelligence and security team. So any folks out there that have done a few years in the military or in the police or in law enforcement, you know, carry on. It's a great career, but if you really do want to do something a bit different and you're wondering that that, that the, the mentality of, a, of, of, you know, security and intelligence working in the public sector really does translate into the private sector. So you've got nothing to be afraid of. Just as I was encouraging people to join the military earlier, if you want to get out and go into the private sector, you will be valued. Um, so listen, that, that kind of, that's where I am. I had a year of job hunting. Um, there's a separate thing there about CVs and all that kind of stuff that I'm, I'm, I'll, I'd be glad yeah. to go into in, in, in another setting. You know, uh, definitely learned a lot about resumes, CVs, interviews. I think I've got about 150 different CVs on my computer from when I was Whoa. trying to tweak different, you know, versions of my CV and get things out. Yeah. And in late, late 2020, I had a few offers on the table. By then I'd managed to get my CV looking okay, I guess, after a year of trying. And the pharmacy, this pharmaceutical company got in touch. And uh, what they were doing at the time, it, you know, they were very much in the infancy of the corporate intelligence piece. Essentially, they recruited me to build their corporate intelligence team. They didn't know it at the time, that's what it's become. So in January uh, last year, 21, I joined uh, my company and I've slowly built and now manage the global corporate intelligence function that supports the global security. So we don't do, as I said, cyber or anything like that. Yeah. We obviously collaborate, yeah, one has to, uh, and it's necessary and it's also very interesting. But uh, we do, you know, people, places and products and uh, we built that team over time, and uh, now now we're really starting to deliver uh, into into my second year, and it's a thoroughly rewarding job, uh, thoroughly interesting, but, and I'd recommend anybody you know who's who's looking to jump and really wants to jump into the private sector do so, and anyone is more than welcome to reach out to me, whether it's about you know public sector work, be that military or government, and or indeed you know transition to the private sector. I've done it for just over a year, so I'm no expert, but you know, I have, have built a very small team and, uh, and, and a function. So, you know, anybody that just wants to chew the fat or anybody that wants to offer advice, actually, I'm all ears, um, please get in touch. And this is also a good point for our, for our listeners. We'll put all the uh, links to the blog post and also Garrett's um, LinkedIn profile. I will put it in the show notes. So please feel free to reach out to him. We reached the end of the interview. I just wanted to say again, thank you so much for joining me today and also to share your personal career story, which is like such an impressive career, um, how you moved from being a teacher to joining the military and then also going through all these different and very interesting positions and then eventually ending up in the world of, you know, corporate security in the private sector. But also you highlighted that it was quite challenging for you for years or Maybe this is a good point, uh, or maybe for another session where we can talk about this. Uh, you mentioned job hunting and CVs, uh, writing CVs and cover letters, which is again, from my experience as well, which is another skill set um, that you kind of like have to have on how to write and how you how to sell yourself. 
but we're going to do a separate session on this here at Ozen Jobs. So first of all, thanks again so much for joining us. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed it today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And, and um, just a, a personal thanks to you. You're doing great work on the uh, Authentic Jobs uh, site and the thank forum. You. It's a really admirable work. So uh, thank you for all you're doing. It's a, it's a real service. And uh, um, as I said, any of your listeners, uh, please, please feel free to reach out anytime. And thank you once again. Awesome. Yeah. And to all of our listeners, I really hope you enjoyed this episode. And if so, I'd be super happy if you could leave us a review on wherever you listen to podcasts, because this would help us a lot and would also support the show. So thanks so much for tuning in and uh, see you next time. <laughs>